might have built some virtual IPs and pools using a load balancer to create a redundant service with a bit of scaling capability. But how do you provide highly available, scalable services to a cloud-native app that's been architected with microservices? Do you just stand up a whole lot of virtual IPs and pools? Not exactly. You need both more capability and more automation. You need a service mesh. Today on the Datanauts Podcast. Joining us on today's Data Knots episode to discuss service meshes is our very fine sponsor, Avi Networks. I am Ethan Banks, along with Chris Wall, and joining us from Avi is Ashish Shah, Senior Director of Product at Avi. And Ashish, what is this about you having a Dexter-esque persona, it says here in my uh, in my show notes? Hey, Ethan. Uh, thanks for that introduction, and thanks, Chris, for having us here at Avi Networks. Well, let's just say that there are some people here at Avi who who like to have fun with me. So uh, I won't read too much into that Dexterx persona, Chris. Anything? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was a little scared for a moment, but yeah, let's move on. <laughs> well, then, okay, let's jump into the conversation then and get get techie. Ashish, what is a service mesh? So service mesh is a disaggregated set of application and network services. Let's go back a step and explain where the roots of this come from. So if you think of your applications disaggregation, right? So traditionally, we have had monolithic applications in front of which you put network services or application services, load balancers, firewalls, maybe a monitoring tool. As things are progressing from monolithic to three-tier to completely disaggregated microservices-based apps, the same set of services, and I'll argue actually more services, application and network level services, need to go in between these microservices as well as in front. And this distributed set of application services is also called service mesh. You can think of it as a network of interconnected devices with layer four to layer seven services that they provide, providing reliability, availability, security, visibility for a uh, microservices-based environment, typically containers, but not always. Right. And that, that corresponds with some articles that Chris and I found. There's an article from IBM. There's another one from Buoyant. Uh, just to read a couple of quotes here that reinforce what you were saying. From IBM, they say, think of a service mesh as a network of interconnected devices with routers and switches, except in this case, the network exists at the application layer, layer seven. Nodes or services and routing delivery and other tasks are offloaded to the service mesh. And then uh, Buoyant.io and Cloud Native Computing Foundation also echoed this exact article from Buoyant. A service mesh is a dedicated infrastructure layer for making service-to-service communication fast, safe, and reliable. If you're building a cloud-native application, you need a service mesh. So it it sounds like like load balancing, but only on a massive scale with a lot of more granularity and, and detail than old-school load balancing. Is that maybe fair to put it that way? Yeah, that's a great starting point. So as I said to my previous analogy, right, instead of just being a north-south in front of a monolithic app, you need the same set of services, which is a load balancing or a proxy between those east-west set of microservices. You need firewalling or security, but you need a few more services. Because imagine if a monolithic application where initially the individual components were talking to each other inside the application. Now the same components are talking on the network externally. So In addition to load balancing and security, you need service discovery because one service or microservice needs to discover where some other microservice might reside. Let's take a specific example. Let's say you have an e-commerce application where the individual services could be a front-end web service 
then you might have a checkout service, you might have a transaction service, maybe an inventory service, and so on. And each of these services might have multiple instances for independent scaling. And so now if the checkout service wants to talk to the transaction service, it needs to find where it resides. So in its service discovery, in addition to load balancing and security, that's a new type of network and application service that your service mesh needs to deliver. You need auto-scaling because each of these independent services needs to be able to scale automatically based on their individual load. Again, service mesh needs to facilitate that. You need an advanced case of services, for example, circuit breaker, when suddenly one service is being hammered or one of the backend instances is down. You need to break that set of communications automatically. And mm. there are other advanced use cases that we can talk about as we go, but it builds upon those proxy and load balancing services and adds new services which are unique to this distributed, disaggregated environment. So it sounds like traditionally we had some sort of operating system and we installed the application on it, and there wasn't a lot of network traffic internally because all the processes and the binaries and libraries were just kind of talking on the box. They knew they were there. The application just spanned one server, maybe two for redundancy, and all the load balancing was kind of at the web layer or to get people in. So you didn't need to discover the services that were on there because they were just on the app. There was only one of them. And now it sounds like the problem is as we break that apart and start using the network to transport you know, information and decision-making and, and data around the area, like you, you don't really know what's going on. That's where service discovery comes in. Like, okay, what nodes are hosting what services and where are they and how many are there and, and things like that. So it sounds like the service mesh is really just more of a, we have an explosion of the amount of things that are running within the cloud, the data center, whatever. We need to understand where they are, how to get to them circumvent failure, things like that. Am I kind of on the right path? Because I'm trying to make sure that we all are on the same path to uh, to understanding this this massive change. I know as an ops person, this is a pretty huge difference from you know installing a .exe or a .msi on a Windows box. You exactly are right. That's exactly the point, that there's an explosion of this inter-service communication that the service mesh needs to handle. Is this going to become a new standard way of doing things, Ashish, or is it going to kind of be niche? And I ask it in this context. I noticed that the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, they've made a really big deal about service meshes. They've got the Linkerd open source project they brought in-house in January 2017. Envoy came in in uh, September 2017, both of those having a role to play in the world of service meshes. So is this something we're going to be hearing a lot more about from the industry at large? Uh, yes. So as containers are beginning to go mainstream in production deployment, and for the right reasons, uh, because there's a lot of problems, you will hear more about service mesh in general. The reason is that as these initially DIY and science lab projects with open source tools get deployed in production, you will see the problems, the real world operational and production deployment problems. They come to the forefront and the industry wants to solve them. And so that's why you see increased visibility in the recent months. So just as it happened with virtualization over a decade ago, as the containers and microservices become mainstream, you will see the challenges that come along with that, as well as solutions, both commercial and open source solutions, will go mainstream. And so, yes, we, we do expect to see more and more uh, discussions and solutions around service mesh. Okay, so I think we have an arms-around-it kind of high-level approach to understanding the architecture. Let's dive a little bit deeper, and I just want to understand the different ways that you can approach the architecture for a service mesh, such as, you know, what about 
kind of a coarse approach, a fine-grained approach, kind of what what are the different architectural approaches, and also what are the pros and cons of the different approaches? On one end, you have the most coarse-grained approach, which is if you take your traditional appliances, which were providing at least a subset of these services in terms of load balancing and security in a monolithic world, you could, in theory, put them in a service mesh environment. Of course, it's not practical because you will have traffic tromboning. These are appliances which are not distributed. So yeah. an impractical but theoretically possible approach of an appliances. On the other extreme is a very fine-grained, completely distributed what the industry calls a sidecar approach, where you put a service mesh instance or a load balance or a proxy instance as a sidecar to every container. And so that is the other extreme of the architectural approaches. That sounds pretty horrible. <laughs> exactly, right? Yeah. So, that does not sound good. So both have challenges. So the most distributed one, the challenge is a scale. How do you scale? If you have, let's say, 1,000 nodes in your cluster and each node or each host has 50 containers, that's 50,000 individual container instances, which means 50,000 sidecars. That's very difficult to scale. So just like with anything, there's always a happy middle. And so there are a couple of different middle ground approaches. One is in a container environment especially is a per host or a per node approach where you put an instance of this proxy on every node of your container cluster. And that is servicing all the containers that are running on that node. In a non-container, more of a virtualized or VM-based environment, which is also possible, uh, you might do a per-app proxy or a per-app load balancer. Again, both are both of these are middle grounds because they are distributed. They are not centralized. They are distributed with the, the order of number of nodes in your cluster or number of applications in the cluster, but not to the event that there are one per container, which are hard to manage. In any of these distributed approaches, however, you do need a centralized management, centralized orchestration, and automation. Otherwise, they become extremely hard to manage. So in my mind, the right approach is a distributed per host approach uh, with centralized management and with automation. So then now I think of Avi, I think of you you guys as a load balancing company that's done extraordinary with uh, automation integrating into dynamic, cloudy kind of environments. In the context of service meshes, how do you guys fit in? That's a great question. So our roots are in both enterprise-grade load balancing, as you said, but also what we disrupted the market with was a distributed architecture. There was an industry first, right? So when we built a solution, we built a distributed lightweight proxy fabric, we call it service engine fabric, managed by a centralized controller. And so that fits extremely well with the distributed service mesh architecture, because from ground up, it was designed for a distributed environment and not just VMs, but also containers. And with the centralized controller, you get the integration with the orchestration systems such as Kubernetes or OpenShift or Mesos. So we bring in the next generation distributed architecture, which is a perfect fit for service mesh. At the same time, the enterprise grade feature rich solution with load balancing or proxy with security and firewalling capabilities, with analytics and visibility, with enterprise-grade features like REST APIs and multi-tenancy, all built on a platform of elasticity and automation. The other thing I like to point out is, um, as we discussed earlier, service mesh and microservices is a transition that's going to take, let's say, five to 10 years, which means in, in that next decade, you're going to have a hybrid deployment, hybrid in sense of 
bare metal, virtualized, containerized, and on-prem and private and public clouds. So you need a solution that works across all of the above use cases in a consistent manner. And that's where we see Avi fit in. You know, Ethan, my takeaway is that this isn't going away, the idea of service meshes and containers and microservices. As much as you may want to stick your fingers in your ear and say, no, I think it's just going to become more and more critical. Thus, my advice is hop on board now, get your arms around it, start understanding the architecture, the tools, the pitfalls, and that way you'll be armed and dangerous for when it hits your environment if it hasn't already. What about you? So uh, she's made the point, containers going mainstream is a driver for service meshes, or that's... I've thought a lot about that because containers do keep coming up more and more, even in the enterprise. Adoption maybe hasn't been as fast as some has predicted, but it is coming. And how are you going to manage that environment? As containers take prevalence in your organization, service meshes is part of how you are going to be providing connectivity between the services in those environments. So again, as you said, Chris, this is coming. Get your arms around it. I definitely learned a lot more than I thought was possible on service meshes in 15 minutes. Ashish, you're doing pretty awesome at getting my nerd dubs kind of floating around on this. But now I'm thinking, all right, I'm the ops person. And I'm wondering if I'm in this role, you know, who's caretaking this? Is this me that is caretaking for the service mesh? Is this infrastructure role? Is this dev role? Who's got their thumb in the pie when it comes to the service mesh? That's a great question, Chris. And so let's uh, look at the history of how this got started, and then we'll we'll see what's required going forward. Container-based microservices have found a favor with app developers, as you know it, right? Because they're solving application-level problems in terms of scalability, yeah. independent deployments, integration with CI/CD tool sets, and so on. So so far, primarily, they've been driving the discussion as well as initial lab deployments. But now that the benefits of the container-based microservices are getting more obvious and mainstream, and as these deployments go production, the ops and the network teams get involved because, well, somebody has to support them, manage them. And as we discussed earlier, the set of services that a service mesh provides is an extension to what the current generation of network and ops teams have been delivering in terms of load balancing and security, plus more. So the interesting part is that while it got started with the app and the developer team, it will require the support and integration with the network and the operations team. And so it's going to be a continuum. So all of the teams have to be on the same plate as to how the whole thing works. But on the ongoing basis, the apps team, when they deploy their application services, they need to have the network team engaged so that when these go from testing to staging to production, the network and the ops team can then manage them, support them, do troubleshooting. At the same time, the days of application teams filing a ticket and waiting for the network and the ops teams, configuring a proxy or a load balancers are gone. Well, just hearing the description of this, it actually just sounds way more interesting than click, click, deploy VM, you know, kind of sit around watching a queue. So I'm kind of happy to hear that IT will be entering this realm more, you know, from an ops perspective, because frankly, it sounds pretty fantastic from a pure joy around the tech perspective. So two thumbs up there. Oh, yeah, it sounds joyful until I think about container networking, which I've been trying to educate myself on more and more. <laughs> and I hear this going, okay, surely 
Ashish, how do you, as a networking person, get your brain wrapped around a service mesh? I mean, at what point are you, as the networking person, supposed to be involved in this? Because it's it's a massive container network, and container networking is one of those things where if it gets away from you, it can kind of be a disaster. Uh, you're absolutely right. So what you need is, as a network team, you need to be looking at the next generation of distributed networking solutions, right? There are both open source solutions and commercial solutions. And you need to understand in a distributed environment, how does the networking work? Now, the basic networking principles are the same. They are not changing. What's different is the level of automation and integration that these tools provide. So for example, let's look at Kubernetes, where there are multiple networks that has an underlays and overlays. Where does the the centralized management and the control come from? Well, how do you integrate with the Kubemaster or OpenShift Master? So as a network team, you need to get yourself familiar with how distributed networking works. If you know the fundamentals of networking, it'll be fairly easy for you, but just get familiarized with the new terminology and the integration that these networking technologies have with Kubernetes or OpenShift or Mesos or Docker. From there, it'll be fairly easy to go to the next step in terms of, okay, once you understand how it works, well, in our day-to-day operations, what do I do and manage? I'm not going to be giving up IP addresses or spinning up containers. Those days are gone. That's all automated. But when the network traffic is going on, I need to know what is the visibility? What's the analytics? Where are the latencies? What is the dependency map of who's talking to who? Do I have the right firewalling controls in place that the two microservices, which are not supposed to talk to each other, are talking to each other? And how do I stop them? How does the auto scaling work? What do I need to have in terms of the resources so that as the traffic grows, both my network and the application instances automatically grow? Okay. (laughs) You just outlined so many things that really prove the point that uh, networking, yes, but I mean, everybody that's in the IT organization needs to be working together to deploy this thing because there's a lot of complex interworkings underneath. And sure, you can just kind of let it run like it did in the lab without thinking about it too hard. And it'll work for a while. And then as the environment grows, it it could turn into an absolute disaster. So getting in front of it and designing it and then deploying it is the way you want to go. And networking certainly is one of the key components of that. There's even other things I've been reading about that are uh, even beyond the complexities of what you said, Ashish, about whether or not a container is exposed to the internet or not and what proxies it hides behind and where the IP address translation is uh, done and how that's tracked and so on. It's really a big deal. Yes, it is. But I think if you get your hands dirty, it is something as a network and ops team, you can you can master it. It's not rocket science. Let's just put it that way. It is distributed. That's where the complexity is coming from. It is automated and applications driven. So the next level of complexity in terms of understanding comes from. But once you master those, as a network and ops person, you need to be aware of this because at the end of the day, you're going to be managing it in production. Well, that's a good segue into that thought of getting stuff into production, because I'm sure most folks listening to the show have seen the cute little meme where the little girl's standing in front of the house that's on fire, you know, in the background saying, well, it worked in dev. It's an ops problem now. So (laughs) I just want to tease apart a little bit about testing. And do we have to include an actual production, you know, system? Do we have to mirror that? You know, just making sure that when we take this kind of from what we think it should be to the reality of production, you know, what that needs to look like and some some ideas around testing. Absolutely, Chris. And I, th- I actually said there are two aspects to production deployment. So on day zero, when you're bringing it for the first time, yes, you need to go through testing and staging, and you need to be running real-time traffic because in the staging environment, 
important is when you find out what are the dependencies, what are the different scaling limitations, what are the different vectors that you might hit a scaling or a performance issue. So you're absolutely right. You need to run real life-like traffic in a staging environment, get all the kinks ironed out. For example, you run traffic and you figure out a pattern that says out of these 20 microservices, this is my dependency map. This is my application map mm-hmm. of who's talking to who. And then before you go in production, lock that down so that it's almost a whitelist uh, kind of environment where you know who's supposed to talk to who. And when, before you go to production, lock every other communication down in an automated fashion, of course. And so that when you go into production, there are no surprises because you have run through the same workload before. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Right? That's a zero-day prevention in, in the sense from networking side of things. But that's just the first time in production, right? In this day and age where in the world of CICD, there is continuous deployment. You're always going in production. How do you go in production without affecting your business critical workloads? That's where A-B testing comes into play. For example, let's say you are running an application version 10 and you want to go to application version 11. Even if you test in staging, actually the better the recommendation is deploy that version 11 as a separate set of instances in your service mesh, send a percentage of the traffic to that new version, that's your A-B testing, and in automated fashion, based on the KPIs that you've defined up front, you either fail over the entire traffic or fail back to the older version based on whether the performance is at least equivalent, if not better, or the errors are less than equal to what you had before, and the overall experience is as good as before or better. This is something that a service mesh solution is supposed to do natively. So for example, we at Ravi, we provide this built-in capabilities for A-B testing that are automated and integrated with your CI-CD tool chain. Well, let's talk a bit more about all of the solutions, if you will, for container orchestration that Avi integrates with, because, I mean, this is still emerging, right? I mean, Kubernetes is really strong as a container orchestration tool that seems to be the, I wouldn't call it the clear winner yet. We're not that far down the road, but I mean, boy, it's leading. And yet it's not the only orchestration tool for cloud native environments. There's plenty of other tools out there. So which architectures and tools does Avi integrate with these days? You're absolutely right, Ethan. So uh, there are a bunch of different tools and solutions out there. So at the infrastructure as a service level, you have Kubernetes, you have Mesos, you have Docker, UCP, you have Rancher. And so Avi integrates with all of them. And of course, uh, based on the customer needs, we see a lot more traction with Kubernetes as well. And so depending on the customer needs, we do feature velocity at a different pace in different orchestration environment. Just to qualify that, when you say integrates with all of them, does that mean, hey, we've got an API, so if someone wants to make an integration, we can do that? Or does that, like, you actually have active integrations that have been built? We actually have active integrations that have been built and deployed. So we have customers running in Kubernetes uh, and Mesos in production, as well as uh, customers testing us in Docker, UCP, as well as Rancher in the labs. And that's only at the infrastructure level. There are past solutions, such as OpenShift, which build on top of Kubernetes, which are similar in terms of integration with a couple of additional enhancements. And we have customers running in production with OpenShift as well. When we say integrations, our philosophy at Avi is as a service cloud native experience. So if you go to Kubernetes, for example, it comes built in with Proxy and um, HAProxy for North-South. It's easy. It's out there. Well, Avi's vision, and we have implemented that, is Replace those with an enterprise-grade solution, but not replace the experience in terms of automation and integration. So 
as another example, like Amazon ELB, right? If you go to Amazon, ELB is a service, it just works. Same thing, Avi in Amazon or Kubernetes or OpenShift replaces the native tool, same as a service experience with integration, but with more enterprise-grade features. That's what we strive for. Following up on that, let's talk security for a moment. You know, like uh, we're talking about deploying into, into test and then putting into stage production, but I feel like security is often the the poor orphan child that never really gets the attention it needs. You know, in the lab, security is taken for granted. And I'm thinking, all right, if that's when we're building out the dependency mapping and really worrying about testing the application without, you know, with fake credentials or whatever, that may be kind of a side effect of going through that process and kind of forgetting about security uh, as we go to production. So I guess boiling that down, what does security look like in a service mesh model where we've got things and endpoints just talking all over the place through the network and you know, is security a, a service mesh role or is something that gets pushed to other layers within the application stack or kind of where does that live? No, it squarely lives in the service mesh. So when you talk about security, uh, I like to generally break it down to at least two high level parts. One is a data plane security, which is what you're referring to, but there's also control plane security. So in data plane security, you have the 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 end-to-end communication that is encrypted, either in form of SSL or link level encryption. Then you have web application firewall, so the application level um, security. You might have whitelist and blacklist or uh, automated rate limiting or authentication at the application level. So all the security aspects that an application expects are the roles of of the service mesh. Also, micro-segmentation is something that's relevant, right? We talked about dependency map, who can talk to who, which microservice can talk to who, and so on. That's the role of service mesh. All these, what I call, is data plane security, right? Uh, application traffic security. It's mm-hmm. also control plane security, right? Uh, access control, uh, multi-tenancy, storing of the SSL keys, uh, secure communications, both in and out and in between. So there are a lot of control plane aspects of security that if you don't account for, you might be exposing yourself in a different way. That's also role of service mesh. Involvement from the beginning of a project like service mesh deployment is really key. And again, I know I'm the networking guy uh, on this show, but uh, boy, when you start getting under the hood of what container networking looks like, you don't want to take a significant infrastructure investment like this, a service mesh, and let it go from a dev experiment to a production environment. Because what's going on under the hood is complicated if you really sit and map out a transaction flow. That's a complexity that you've got to understand for it to be a supportable production environment. Therefore, as soon as a project like this takes off internally and it starts to get labbed up, get in there and start working with it and figure out what would it take to take this lab environment and, and put it into production and have it be supportable. What grabbed your attention, Chris? Uh, so many things resonating from my past life managing a team of IT and dealing with applications being thrown over the wall at me to deploy as an ops person. I really like the idea of using the whitelist for dependencies as you map them out prior to putting in production. You know, ensures that the application can be successfully advanced from the various environments, you know, test to stage to production. So that makes sense. And typically, dependency mapping is done after the fact. So obviously, do it prior and then whitelist it makes way more sense. And then if you combine that with the A-B testing, which is something we just really couldn't do very well uh, outside of like a a Zen desktop farm or something like that. Uh, For the new versions of the software, I mean, that's a pretty snazzy way of deploying new features and improving your service delivery model so that you can uh, have less of those SEV1s where you're spending all weekend just crying yourself to sleep on the phone 
trying to find Brent to fix things, you know, if you've read The Phoenix Project. So good stuff. So Ashish, I want to dive into your platform even more specifically now, because some people listening to this, I mean, we talk about open source a lot on this show. A lot of different open source projects have come through and uh, had a Data Knots episode. And open source is really sexy, right? Everybody talks about it. They love the big open source projects. But when does it make sense to use open source? And when does it make sense to use something that I would describe it as enterprise grade or maybe enterprise ready out of the box? That's a great question. So we've seen even with earlier technologies, uh, even before microservices and service mesh, that open source tools, because they are integrated with with the technology, in this case, containers or Kubernetes, for example, they are very easy to get started with. So when you're doing lab experiments, when you're getting your feet wet, just bringing up a Kubernetes cluster, for example, yeah, sure, go ahead with the open source tools so that at least you know how things work. But when you think about putting your mission-critical applications, which were, in many cases, monolithic last year, and either you have re-architected them or created new cloud-native services from scratch, but they still require the same set of enterprise-grade features, be it load balancing capabilities, being security capabilities, you need a solution that is more than just open source because, again, feature richness is one aspect, the supportability when, as we just saw earlier, right, when things go bad and they do in production, who do you call? Who do you rely on? Who do you rely on hardening the solution before you put it in production? Who do you rely on troubleshooting easily uh, and so on? So the right time to engage an enterprise-grade solution is when you're thinking about going into production, before you go into production, of course, but when you're starting to think about architecting your data center environment, your cloud environment, and what you want to look for at the same time is not an enterprise grid solutions of the last gen that was designed for the last generation of technologies. You want to look for an enterprise grid solution that is built for the next gen architecture. So that's where I think some of the challenges that your, your listeners will find is, well, yes, I want something that is as integrated with the container technologies as the open source tools are, but I want feature richness and supportability. Yeah, and well, there's something to be said there for um, the, a, a lot of the open source projects give you a baseline of functionality that you need to add enhancements to and maybe with some of your own code, add some of that feature richness, meaning you're taking a lot on your shoulders to make that open source project do what you need it to do in some cases versus here's a solution that's already been proven and you can take out of the box and it does these things for you. You hit the nail on the head. In fact, we were working with a large um, banking uh, customer where we showed them the solution and they said, yep, we had an open source project, and but we figured out that we'll take about 24 months of internal development effort before we can go mainstream with that. You just saved us that two years of development cycle. The time to market is way more important. And the cost-wise, it'll be the same because I'd be spending that operational cost on developing and then maintaining the enhanced version of open source solution. So that's when more ready-made commercial solution makes sense. It's like the old tale. This is admin had a problem, so he wrote a Perl script, and then he had two problems. And sometimes right. buying something <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> is better than building your own ad hoc solution. Exploring that a little further, let's say that, uh, hey, I'm, I'm operating a, an Avi service mesh. Things are going great, but how do I manage that? Is there is there a console that I'm using? Is it kind of like the load balancers that I'm used to working with? Kind of describe the experience and how I'm actually interacting with a service mesh with Avi. 
Great question. So it's extremely easy and very similar to how you interact with a Kubernetes cluster, for example, right? So we have a distributed architecture, as I said earlier, and those are distributed service proxies. We call them service engines with a centralized controller. We call it Avi controller. And just like in Kubernetes, you have a Kube master, we have an Avi controller. And then you have the individual Kube services running on individual hosts. Similarly, the service engines are running on individual hosts. So architecture, it's very similar. On day zero, you spin up Avi controller on uh, as a container on typically the Kube master and point the Avi controller to the Kubernetes API with the credentials. From then on, it's everything is completely automated as it should be. So for example, Avi controller would spin up the Avi proxies on each of the hosts automatically by logging in, SSHing in. And from then on, when you deploy the services or applications in Kubernetes or OpenShift, Avi listens to those notifications and automatically creates those VIPs, adds the pool members, and basically starts serving traffic. So truly, it is a zero-touch solution after you do the initial Avi controller installation. And then you can pass all the policies through APIs. Of course, you can use Avi UI, which is the Avi console, if you want to see the visibility, mm-hmm. the analytics. But in terms of provisioning, zero-touch. Completely API-driven, completely integrated with your container ecosystem. So Okay, so let's drill into the controller a bit more. That seems like the critical, or I guess the center part of getting the configuration done and keeping touch with what's going on. That controller is right in the middle of everything. That's not an uncommon topology at all. Uh, pretty typical, I think, with what's in most people's heads. So does the orchestration system keep tabs on the Avi service mesh? You know, reach out to the controller and say, hey, Avi service mesh, how, how are things going? And then the controller gives it answers back and maybe the orchestration system makes decisions on its own based on what it hears back from the Avi controller? It's slightly the opposite as far as controller is concerned. For service engines, what you said is true. So let me break it apart. Avi controller listens to the notifications from Kubernetes or Mesos or whoever the orchestration systems is. So you pass annotations or attributes to the Avi controller through the APIs. But Avi controller is taking care of the lifecycle management of the service mesh itself. Avi controller, again, listens to the policies or configurations and also keeps uh, track of okay. all the service mesh components, the service engines, which means the brain, as far as service mesh is concerned, is an Avi controller. I'll give you a specific example, right? So let's say you have 20 microservices running and each has three to five containers each. One of the microservices is running hot. So the, the traffic is increased and the latency is starting to increase. The CPU is running high. Based on the policy that you have configured, Avi controller calls into the orchestration API, it's a Kubernetes API, and says, add additional containers for application, basically auto scale. And when those two or three additional application instances got added, they automatically get added to the pool members of that microservice. So the whole brain of the system is with the Avi controller. Right. Okay. So, and this, you're helping to draw some distinctions here because as you dig into Kubernetes and its auto scaling functionality, it will do, you know, spawn off instances on its own. But what it sounds like here is almost like the Avi controller is kind of abstracting away a lot of the detail of the service mesh so that Kubernetes isn't, doesn't have to worry about it so much. 
the controller, the Avi controller then is listening to, as you said, policies and uh, state of what's going on in the environment and then reacting to it, bringing up containers, if you will, in the service mesh as required. Uh, how, how am I doing? Right. No, you're not doing, you're doing right. So it actually can spin up additional application instances, but also if Kubernetes had that logic or you configured Kubernetes to add auto-scaling capabilities, we honor that as well. So it's bi-directional as far as auto-scaling concern is concerned. But also, let's say you had a 100-node cluster and you want 225-node cluster. You don't have to change any config in Avi. When you added those 20 additional hosts, we automatically spun up, the Avi controller automatically would spin up the, the service engine on each of those 20 new hosts and they start they become the part of a service mesh right away. Ah, okay. So okay, so so now let me let's let's take a step back and put this in the context of I'm an old school load balancer admin and you know back in the day I'd you know crank up a virtual IP and uh, pool members and I'd I'd scale manually, you know, way back in the day. You are. But, hey, 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 <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> in this world, that's not possible at all. Everything that you're doing is automated, correct? And there's never I mean there's no real once I've built a policy there's no manual work for me as, as like I would have done back in the day as a load balancer admin, correct? You're absolutely correct. And you cannot afford to have any manual operations. You will not scale and uh, you will not figure out what's going on. So everything is automated from, uh, as I said earlier, auto scaling based on rich metrics such as application latency, uh, throughput, uh, CPU memory, which even Kubernetes can do, but number of requests, all of that is automated. Also automated is security policies. You can say, well, if these two services try to talk to each other more than X number of times, something is wrong, maybe something got compromised, shut it down, rate limited, right? So you can put a lot of those policies to drive that automation and intelligence. At the end of the day, what you want to drive is intelligence, predictive auto-scaling, predictive security. And that's where uh, Avi is today and, and to a great extent, and we're driving towards uh, going forward to get even more predictive analytics into the platform. Yeah, honestly, that sounds like one of the cooler parts is as you create a distributed system, you can kind of peer into what was formerly a black box, especially as an ops person. So I know for me, that kind of that kind of tickles my fancy. I'm I'm kind of excited about that. But on the flip side, though, I'm thinking, all right, I'm, I'm an infrastructure engineer at a service mesh makes me feel a little bit like, whoa, hold on a moment. If I'm trying to troubleshoot an application performance problem or, you know, understand the complexity of this service mesh, maybe I feel a little vulnerable because there's so much going on. I'm kind of curious how Avi is going to show me what's going inside, you know, into the service mesh and, and going on with the applications. Oh, absolutely. And so I think one of our key platform attribute is that visibility and analytics. It's not a feature. It's a platform attribute. And so with our architecture, right, you get centralized visibility into the application traffic, both for the north-south side of things and east-west. So, for example, we automatically build an app map talking about who's, which microservice is talking to, which are the microservice. What you get is not just a dependency map, but on every link, if you will. If you imagine a map, interconnected map, on every link, you can say, what is the latency? What is the throughput? What are the number of errors? You can get on a per link basis, if you will, between the apps. But even inside that transaction, so let's say you're a north-south application, traffic is coming from all over the world, and you know as a network admin, you always get blamed. It's always a network, right? Well, no, it can be the WAN, it can be the local network, it can be an app, or it can be a bandwidth issue. 
we break down on a per transaction basis or a per application basis that latency at every stage. And so many of our customers have told us that your tool is a mean time to innocence tool. <laughs> yeah, because it's expanding things that you normally couldn't see. Now it's, you know, it's very detailed. Like this is where the issue is. You can start driving real so instead of just, oh, it's the network, which Ethan's life was largely based on being blamed. <laughs> And not only that, right, not just for the network guys, right, because even for network guys today, you do TCP dumps at 10 different locations with microservices. It's it's even worse, right? Where all do you TCP dump? Do you even know where the endpoints reside? You don't. So those days are gone. We have log analytics that's built in where you do Google-like search on the transaction logs. And the same logs are not just at the IP or the TCP port level but gives you URL information, it gives you SSL information, it gives you which browsers are the most heavily used. So App Team loves it too, because they can now profile their applications and say, huh, when I optimize my app, I want to focus on Chrome versus Firefox, for example, or an Apple device versus an Android device or vice versa. So that same richness is available for both the network layer and the application layer. So before we close, I just want to kind of follow up on an earlier question I asked about the, you know, going back to the console question I asked about managing with Avi. You know, is Avi intended just for container-based application architectures, or does it encompass other types of application architectures as well, above and beyond just containers? That's a great question. So, no, uh, Avi's roots are in enterprise-grade load balancing with a distributed architecture, right? So the same solution is available not just for containers and microservices, but also your traditional load balancing use cases, whether it's a bare metal refreshes or the virtualized environment with private cloud or public cloud with Amazon, Azure, Google, and so on, all through a single pane of glass. So the centralized AVI controller can manage these proxy or load balancing service engines on-prem, public cloud, across virtualized bare metal and container environment. And that's where you get that operational consistency because you're going to have a hybrid environment for the longest time. And so Avi has been very successful in all of the above use cases, whether it's on-prem or public cloud. Well, Ashish Shah from Avi, thank you for joining us today. Now, we have a bunch of nerds that listen to this show. These are, are really geeky folks. And if they want to go dig deeper and find out more information about Avi, about service meshes, you got any recommendations for them? Oh, yes, absolutely. So uh, if you go to our website, avinetworks.com slash service-mesh, you will find a rich set of information, including a link to a white paper where we go deeper into how Avi works in an OpenShift or Kubernetes environment. There's a list of detailed tutorials, a much more expanded version of what we talked about, delivered by our CTO in a three-part series around deploying service mesh. And then um, you can always reach out to us. I mean, um, you can you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at, at underscore Ashish Shah or at Avi Networks. Or you can check out me on LinkedIn as well. All right. At underscore Ashish Shah. Someone got it there ahead of you? Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks again for being on the show. And everyone, that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. Our thanks to Avi Networks for sponsoring the Data Knots today. Without our sponsors, we can't do what we do here at the Packet Pushers Network. To find out more about Avi and to get a free drawstring backpack, visit avinetworks.com slash datanauts. One more time if you missed it because you were spaced out because it's the outro. Hey, there's a free drawstring backpack for you courtesy of Avi. Just go to avinetworks.com slash datanauts. And for more of our datanauts shows about infrastructure engineering, feast your brain on the cornucopia of free technical information at packetpushers.net. 
Until then, may your server lights blink, your service meshes scale infinitely, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.